From Springfield, this is State Week, a program of analysis and commentary on the events that made news this past week in Illinois state government and politics. As long as we continue to say that we are the party of Trump and that we have to abide by the party principles and the platform 100%, we're going to continue down this path of losing. We need to do more to not take these strident positions on issues related to firearms, to uh, issues of reproductive health, issues relating to the gay and lesbian community. There are many people who feel very strong about those issues who would vote for Republicans. That's Jim Durkin as he prepared to leave his position as Illinois House Republican leader. His view is one of those in the Republican Party calling for more inclusiveness. Some, though, want to go a different way. We'll talk about the Republican divide, that and more coming up on State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield, and along with us we have Charlie Wheeler, Professor Emeritus and former director of the Public Affairs Reporting Program at the University of Illinois Springfield. Charlie's also been a longtime Statehouse reporter and observer. And joining us today, we have Rick Pearson, Chicago Tribune political reporter. And Rick, always good to have you along with us. Thank you, Sean. It's always a pleasure to join you guys. So, Rick, you covered last weekend the Republican State Central Committee meeting. This was the first one since the recent election. Republicans not doing too well across the state of Illinois. And for those that don't know, this is the party brass, the organization for the Illinois Republicans. From what I read in your story, the divisions within the party they were on display there. Can you fill us in a bit more on what took place? Uh, this was one of those where I, I tell people I do it so you don't have to. This was a uh, <laughs> this this was a, a four hour meeting in suburban Bolingbrook of the Republican State Central Committee, and it was an open meeting, public uh, speaking allowed. And what you had was yes, the the top brass of the seventeen member State Central Committee meeting. But then you had a bunch of uh, over, I'd say over a hundred kind of grassroots activists and others, uh, defeated candidates, those kinds of things. And, and basically it was a venting session. Uh, about 60 of them uh, took advantage of the public speaking portion. They got 90 seconds to say their piece. And uh, as much as, and part of this crowd was being stirred up by conservative websites who wanted to see Don Tracy, the state Republican chairman, ousted from his position after such a lackluster showing in the November election. But surprisingly enough, not a lot of the speakers were basically calling for Don Tracy's head. It was just more of a just a general venting session. But these were also people who were supporters of Darren Bailey, the defeated Republican candidate. Uh, and, and believing that the, the, the party establishment basically had uh, sided uh, with Richard Irvin, the Aurora mayor that lost and finished third in the Republican primary in June, that they were, they were more for him and that they wounded Darren Bailey's chances going into the general election against J.D. Pritzker. Well, and, and what, what I find ironic about that is that as much as there was talk in this meeting about how the suburbs that were once the great Republican firewall to Chicago and suburban Cook County, uh, offsetting the Democratic votes there, and now those suburbs have, have gone blue for the most part. 
there was no talk of the messaging that Darren Bailey gave, the, the frequent belittling of Chicago as a hellhole. Uh, there was no uh, talk about supporting Donald Trump and being endorsed by Donald Trump. There was no talk about that message and why the suburbs basically disregarded it in the general election. Yeah, we, we heard Jim Durkin there at the start. Uh, did you hear from people, I would guess I'd call them uh, what might apply more to being a moderate Republican, were they very vocal during this or was it mostly more from the, more from the right? It was it was definitely more from the right. I mean, I'm not even sure what a. It, it, I mean, there were some quote moderate Republicans there in attendance, but they didn't really say anything. And 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 part of this too was some of these party uh, poobahs, if you will, um, seemed a bit tone deaf to the audience that was in the room. And you know, Richard Porter, who's the Republican National Committeeman for Illinois who was well-meaning in some of his thoughts, uh, basically spurred anger from uh, the, the Republican right when he said, you know, Republicans come in many flavors. No, there's only one flavor, you know, and it's that, that far-right conservative flavor that these people were yelling at. Vince Colbert, who's a very successful, uh, wealthy businessman, is head of the Republicans' finance efforts, and he basically castigated these people by saying, if you haven't given money to the party, what are you doing here in the room? Which kind of belittled the idea of, of grassroots volunteerism that basically was the core of the people behind Darren Bailey. Yeah, Charlie, you weren't at this. Uh, like Rick said, he, he went for everybody else, so nobody else had to sit through and, these. And thank and, you, Rick. Yeah. <laughs> and we've been to those, uh, you know, and, on both sides, Republican and Democrat, and they, and they often can be a little bit dry to uh, set through for the average person. But from what you read, what you've heard Rick talk about here, uh, your take on, on where things stand for Republicans right now. Well, the, the other day there was a, an op-ed in the Tribune penned by four of the members of the Illinois Freedom Caucus, uh, more commonly referred to as the Eastern Bloc, who are very conservative members. And they were saying in the op-ed that Republicans who argue for fiscal conservatism and a liberal social agenda basically are the same people who voted to raise the income tax, double the gas tax, and do nothing, quote, to stop harmful overreaches, such as Amendment 1 from passing. Is there any evidence that these politicians had ever done anything but pay lip service to fiscal conservatism, close quote. And they point out that uh, whereas the Republicans lose state elections, they do very well in downstate areas. And here's another quote. We worked hard to flip our counties from reliably blue to ruby red. Perhaps suburban Republicans should be doing more self-reflection on how they have lost the support of their voters over the same time period. What that comment fails to take into account or ignores is the fact that the reason the downstate counties, in my judgment, have become more Republican, more conservative Republican, is because of the lost population, no more coal mining jobs, union jobs, Union manufacturing jobs are really cut. As a matter of fact, the Commission on Government Forecasting and Accountability 
the other day put out a report analyzing in some depth the fiscal 2020 census numbers for Illinois. And they pointed out that in Illinois, there were only 11 counties that showed a change in population of a thousand increases or more. Eight of them were in the Chicago region. The only downstate counties that showed an increase of a thousand or more were Champaign, Monroe, and McLean. And so downstate as a whole is losing population. They're losing union jobs. And the flip side is that the suburbs are really growing and they're growing at a, in my judgment, they're becoming a lot more diverse. Yeah, I was, I was kind of taken aback by that statement. And, and I think they even said that, you know, devoid of evidence or data, they're declaring that conservatives are to blame for the GOP losses in November. Well, there is the data and it does exist. And the, the fact is that, yes, the, that's, the suburbs are always going to be an election decider. But if you can't sell your message to the people living in the suburbs, and that's the message that Darren Bailey was trying to sell, and that's the message that these Eastern Bloc conservatives are trying to sell, the people don't want it. They, yeah. they, don't, they, they don't want it. They do vote for some Republicans. Gwen Henry, uh, DuPage County treasurer forever. She won. Uh, there was a very close race, relatively close, for DuPage County board chairman. But guess what? Deb Conroy, a Democrat, is now chairman of the DuPage County Board. What does that say about the top of the ticket? And I think that's a reflection uh, truly of what Jim Durkin was talking about. And, and I think he knew going into this that with Darren Bailey at the top of the ticket, it was going to hurt Republicans in the suburbs, and especially in seats where Republicans had seen an, perhaps an opportunity to pick up seats. Yeah, and I think part of it is the, the Republican message does not resonate well with suburban voters in their changing demographic. It's not the, the DuPage County of the, what, maybe 20 years ago. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, it wasn't that many elections ago when the first state senator of the Democratic Party was elected from DuPage County, going back to the founding of the, of the state of Illinois. And I mentioned that demographic report from, the, uh, from COGFA, and I was surprised. I didn't realize this, but the Illinois County that has the uh, highest percentage of people who identify themselves as His Hispanic or Latino in the SY20 census was Kane County, where almost a third of the people identified as Latino. And I did not expect that. I knew there were there was a big demographic change there, and that helped elect a couple of Democrats to the Senate from the Elgin area and from the Aurora era, Aurora area. I didn't realize almost a third of the people reported that way. Well, and that also helps explain how that new uh, Latino co congressional district was drawn to in incorporate parts of Elgin and Kane, as well as in, in parts of Aurora, too. Yeah. Now, now Rick, uh, 
I guess from maybe somebody that doesn't follow politics a lot might look at this and say, hey, there have always been people on the far right in the Republican Party, just like there have been people that you know might consider ultra progressive on the far left of the Democratic side. Why can't they all get along? Why can't the part, you know, what's the problem here for the Republican Party? Uh, is it that the moderate wing of it has just either been silenced or is has shrunk maybe in in some cases what's what's the problem with having people of different thoughts within a party well obviously both parties like to call themselves big tent and that there's plenty of room for it but what you do see in the republican party is kind of the, the evaporation of what were moderates and you know we've talked charlie and i've talked for years about what creates a successful statewide Republican candidate is one who is socially moderate, fiscally conservative in the hallmark of, of previous Republican governors. And what you've seen is kind of a, an evaporation of that. The, the Trump factor certainly has accelerated that. I mean, here you have Jim Durkin in that clip talking about we need to be more inclusive and more representative, yet at the Republican State Central Committee meeting, you had the grassroots uh, attendees basically arguing, you're not far right enough to the state party. You, you're, not, you're not adhering to what we're saying. And so in, the, in that evaporation of the moderates, they also left basically the leadership behind in the party and allowed this vacuum to be filled by more far right, more Trump aligned Republicans to basically run the party. But that's not a party that can that can win in in Illinois on a statewide basis. Yeah, they talked about in the meeting successes of electing people in various downstate counties. But as Charlie said, that's basically an attrition issue over the loss of, of Democrats, conservative Democrat, union Democrat jobs that there aren't, there is no real democratic foothold that exists in downstate anymore. And that includes Madison County, which back in the day, as Charlie and I both know, Madison and St. Clair County were the two largest democratic counties outside of Cook for votes. Madison County has now flipped and is virtually almost all Republican. Well, let me play devil's advocate before we move on here. Charlie, some would say in the Republican Party, hey, you did put somebody that might be considered more moderate, a Richard Irvin, up to run for governor. He didn't do very well. So maybe the Republican voters don't want that. Maybe they do want people to be more to the right. You know, what would you what would be your response to that? Well, I would I would say the, the electoral results suggest that. As a matter of fact, and this is referring uh, back to Rick's story. Uh, Chairman Porter said that uh, Richard Irvin was a great candidate and somebody from the crowd hollered out, no, he's a liberal. And as Rick mentioned, the, the voice that said, we're one flavor. Now, if you have that kind of attitude, and I, I don't see how you're going to succeed in the state of Illinois, given the demographic changes in the suburbs, given the attrition downstate in terms of population, so I'm, I'm thinking that somehow or other, either the Republican Party has to go back to the days of people like Richard Ogilvy, Jim Thompson, Jim Edgar, or they're going to be kind of in the category 
what, 150 years ago, however long ago it was, more than that, I guess, 170, of the Whig Party. And there will be some new party emerge made up of people who are more moderate, former Republicans, more conservative Democrats, and maybe we'll come up with a third party, the Illini Party or something. I mean, it, it truly is a party that is bordering on irrelevancy. Well, let me uh, move on here. Uh, don't want to run out of time with a couple other things to talk about this week. And one of those that we didn't get to earlier this month, but Rick, you did cover this. Democrats have been pushing to make Illinois more of a national player on the presidential primary scene, maybe making us the first primary, I think, was a hope that they would have. Uh, that didn't happen. So what went wrong there? Well, I mean, this was a, a great aspirational goal by the by the, the state Democrats to try to when the when the the national Democrats decided to reimagine and reopen their their starting lineup of states, and Iowa has suffered from several uh, snafus, debacles uh, over uh, the vote counting of the caucus system, and of course you have issues like diversity, um, swing state concerns, those kinds of things. All of those, Iowa became an outmoded model. And, and so when you look at uh, Illinois wanted to jump at a chance, there were the National Democrats were looking at kind of a regional approach for things. And so if I was gone, why not Illinois? Illinois has great diversity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Illinois is a very costly state to campaign in. That was one major factor that for a, a aspiring presidential bid, if you're, you, you're going to have to buy the Chicago media market, the Chicago media market covers 70% of the state's voters, by the way, something I learned at that Republican State Central Committee meeting. So you got to pay, you know, a huge freight for advertising for a candidacy. The fact that Illinois in presidential elections is overwhelmingly blue, it's plus 17 in the last couple of presidential elections for Democrats. So there wasn't a swing state kind of attraction there. Um, ultimately, they decided not to go first, but ultimately decided uh, that Michigan would be a better representation for diversity, for union jobs, for uh, multiple media markets, Detroit media market, not that expensive, but um, would better suit what the Democrats are looking for. But they did opt for South Carolina as the new starting point, which after having covered several Iowa caucuses in December and January, I think at least from the media side, they'll appreciate going to South Carolina. Phyllis, and then what does it mean for Illinois now as far as when our primary will be held? Are we back to being about where we normally have been? That's yes, we're 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 back to the kind of mid-March trajectory unless things change. This the what the Democratic National Committee was basically doing was for the first five states, the pre-window states as they as they call it and so we're, we're back we would be back to our normal mid-march which is still uh somewhat early we're still one of the earliest states for candidates uh nationally to file in to, to get on the ballot and, and get their delegate slates put together i should also say too that we're only talking about democrats here with south carolina and republicans are sticking with um the traditional lineup of of Iowa and and 
that kind of thing and, and New Hampshire. This is this is more of a only a Democrat thing, but still, we're, we we are finding now. Look at the Democrat election, presidential election for twenty four. If Joe Biden runs, there's not really going to be any opposition. So you could almost consider this a, a trial run by the the DNC kind of thing. Um, really, the horse race is going to be what the Republican primary. Charlie, did you think this was a good move to uh, to go a different route, get away from Iowa for the Democrats? Yeah, I, I, I think it was, and I think history will will show. Or if you look at just the last time around, uh, President Biden did not do very well in Iowa, and it was South Carolina that really propelled him to the nomination because of the fact that uh, South Carolina has a lot more black voters than Iowa. And they very solidly were behind Joe Biden. So I think that's a good move. The one thing that I'm thinking is still kind of up in the air is the earlier primaries in Iowa and New Hampshire are mandated by state law that they have to go before others. New, so New, Hampshire, New Hampshire is is the primary one where it's it's yeah, Iowa's the caucus. Right. I think the the Iowa caucuses also by state law have to occur earlier. And so the question is, will there be some kind of lawsuit challenging those laws? Or will the DNC say, if you don't follow the new schedule, we won't seat your delegates? I think that's still up in the air and that remains well, to be resolved. The, the, the DNC kind of made it clear that it would be penalizing, like losing delegates or or reducing delegates if you violate their their plans. Yeah. Well, Rick, the uh, one of the things when we talk about presidential politics these days that has to be brought up is J.B. Pritzker. There has been a lot of rumors that he would consider running, especially, you know, if Joe Biden decided not to, uh, to make a bid himself. He certainly would be helped by Illinois being right at the forefront uh, because, you know, quite often people drop out of the race after the first couple of primaries. Would this hurt his chances more? Do you think he's still a player? Well, I mean, I, I, I still think there's every intention that Biden's going to be seeking reelection. Uh, but but absent that, if you, you do recall that we moved the primary up when Barack Obama was running for president, we moved it into February. Uh, to secure an earlier advantage for him. And, and you know, Obama won the Iowa caucuses. Uh, one, of the, one of the few recent examples of Iowa picking a winner right from the start. Otherwise, we'd have President Buttigieg and President Bernie Sanders right now. Um, but, uh, yeah, certainly, you know, there's nothing that prohibits Illinois Democrats from moving a primary date to be advantageous for an Illinois candidate. So even though that would be beneficial in some respects, you could also make the argument too, is that uh, they voted for the home state uh, candidate and that other campaigns wouldn't compete in the state. This week, another hearing on a proposed ban on what is referred to as assault weapons took place. In fact, a couple of hearings. And the lawmakers are considering possibly bringing this up for a vote in the upcoming lame duck session, which happens in early January. So we'll be talking more about that at that time. 
Also, this last week, we got news that the state senator, Scott Bennett, from Champaign, he passed away. He was only 45 years old, survived by his wife and two small kids. And we heard a lot of people on both sides, both parties coming out. He was a Democrat, but both parties coming out and offering condolences and talking about uh, working with him in the past. And, uh, Rick, you even heard some of that this week at the uh, State Central Committee meeting for Republicans. Yeah, I, I thought it was very telling that here, you know, in this kind of Republican venting session that uh, State Senator Jason Plummer from Edwardsville uh, stood up to uh, ask everybody to take a moment of silence for for Bennett's passing. And I, I mean, that, that, that to me was a, a great show of respect because uh, he'd been known as someone who, you know, downstate, so a bit more a conservative Democrat, if you will, uh, than, than a, a Chicago North Shore liberal, but someone who was able to work with both sides of the aisle. He was kind of a, basically, I would say an icebreaker uh, in talks about changing the Safety Act, the Criminal Justice Reform Act, and the amendments that were uh, just recently adopted in the legislature, basically provided some cover for J.B. Pritzker and others to say, you know, these are ideas worth considering after Republicans were pummeling Democrats over uh, their view of how the law was going to let everybody out of jail on January 1st. So, I mean, he did engender a lot of respect on both sides of the aisle. It also didn't hurt, too, that he was also a, a former assistant county prosecutor, so that he did kind of have the law enforcement bona fides to be able to talk about the safety act and and help make those changes all right well it's time now for our notes from the field and charlie let's go to you first well this is going to be kind of outside of the political realm but the nba announced this past week that they are renaming its most valuable player trophy to be the michael jordan trophy now for us chicago sports fans that's a, a blast from the past particularly considering how the bulls and, and the blackhawks are doing this time around and the trophy in which jordan helped design has characteristics that remind people of michael jordan's great success it's going to stand 23.6 inches tall and weigh 23.6 pounds now, 23, of course, was his jersey number, and six was the number of NBA titles the Bulls won with him. And so it's uh, a bronze trophy. It's going to be awarded the MVP, and it has other, I won't get into them, but it has other design characteristics to remind people about Michael Jordan's great career. All right. And Rick, let's stay on the sports beat. <laughs> well, uh, apparently the Chicago Bears, as they uh, ponder their move to uh, the former Arlington Park racetrack in Arlington Heights, are, are floating the concept of a uh, taxing uh, district that would not be your traditional uh, TIF kind of taxing district, but would be something called a pilot payment in lieu of taxes. And as, as part of this development, it's not only the stadium, but also uh you got a 300 acre plot. They're looking at other kinds of development there. And the Bears say they need some uh, property tax certainty to move forward with this project. 
And rather than tiffing it, which would lock uh, growth in property taxes into that defined area, they want to talk about a, this pilot kind of thing where they could negotiate paying taxes to various taxing bodies within that district. I don't think this thing is going to fly. It's done in some respects like uh, federal uh, military bases do pay supplemental payments to local school districts, those kinds of things. But on something this, I'm not sure that the legislature really wants to swing a door wide open here for creation of a, a new kind of taxing district policy. Well, we'll continue to follow that. That's all of the time we have for this episode of State Week. Our panel included Charlie Wheeler and Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. You can get a podcast of our show at nprillinois.org through the NPR One app or iTunes. Just look for State Week. And join us next time. I'm Sean Crawford. You've been listening to State Week, a program of commentary and analysis of events in Illinois state politics and government. State Week is produced in the state capitol by public radio station NPR Illinois. This is IPR, Illinois Public Radio.